2 Samuel especially. Uh, the story goes on into Kings a little bit, but especially 1 and 2 Samuel and reading those stories are incredible literature in the sense of drawing us in and, and all that literature should be, but they're also full of God's wisdom. So today we're going to be focusing on, uh, on David, his life, and we began last week, you recall, with a, a woman named Hannah. Now, let's get the context of this a little bit. One of the things you're going to see as you look at the scriptures is something you might call the Matushkadal principle. And uh, you guys know this is Matushkadal probably. Amy's mother had a short mistress trip in Russia, and she brought this home. So that's where we got this, right? I have to make sure she knows more of the details about everything than I do. Um, and, of course, you know what's inside this. So if you open this guy up, or this girl up, I guess it is, you've got another one inside. And you keep opening. And some of these are sticking together. But you understand the principle that eventually you keep opening, and there's more of these. And uh, you think, there uh, can't be any more. But there is. And you keep opening these. And you're like, okay, that's got to be it. No, nope, there's another. And there we go again. And then we finally get to the, the germ of the matter, I guess you would say, in the scientific sense. All right, now, the Matushkadal principle in Scripture is this, that when we're reading a story, we have to keep in mind that there are different levels of the stories going on. And uh, another way to kind of illustrate this would be that when we're reading David's story, or like last week when we were reading the story of Hannah, on one level, it is the story of what's happening on the individual lives, and those matter. And they matter because they are tied in to a larger story. So the larger story of, Israel, of the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, is this story, the middle level of Israel's story. Why is David important? Well, first of all, because of what God did through him in establishing Israel. Now, there's one further layer of story, though, and that is, Israel is important because of what God is doing in redeeming mankind. So, what God does for Israel is to bring them out of slavery and into a land of peace and prosperity and wholeness. And you see that under the reign of David and Solomon, what the Bible would call shalom. Uh, you probably know that word, Hebrew word for peace, but it means more than an absence of war, wholeness, fullness, blessing, calmness, rightfulness, you might say. And, uh, and so God's goal is to bring mankind from a state of slavery to mankind's own sin and the consequences of that sin, as well as the, the forces of, of evil, both human evil and, I believe, demonic evil, and to bring them into a place of shalom with God. And Israel is part of that. In many ways, it illustrates the larger story. So that is the Matushkadal principle. We'll come back to that uh, here. Now I've got all these dumb things all over the place. And I can't see my notes. All right. So last week, we, we began noticing that when God's doing this, so this is David's story. There's going to be 66 chapters in David's story. It is a key to the Israel story. There is no one who is quoted more often or talked about more often than David in the Old Testament. In fact, the only person who's referred to more often than David in the Bible is Jesus. 
And then that is part, of course, of God's story. God is the one who is the hero of all these stories, ultimately, not because he desires to be glorified, but because he's the one ultimately doing all things. And uh, so we saw last time, God begins this whole story of David, which is key to his people Israel, and it begins with the, the barren womb of a woman who simply comes to God in prayer in her distress. And God answers that prayer, and he raises up this prophet, Samuel. And it, it's akin to how <clears throat> Ruth, a Moabitess, um, made a simple choice to go back with Naomi, even though it went against probably her common sense and her perceived self-interest. She did it as an act of loyalty and love to take care of this aged widow. And through that, God gave the line of David. She became the great-great-grandmother of King David. And King David, as we'll see, not only is it the lineage of Jesus Christ, but he is the symbol in the Old Testament most preeminently of Jesus Christ. So that's where we <clears throat> talked about last week. I'm not going to go into that uh, fully because, hey, if you weren't here, you missed it. But today we're going to talk about the next step in that, though. So we're not actually going to get to too much of David today. Why? Because the, the Bible is showing us that God is doing something, but there's always these preparatory steps. And while he's doing something, we may not see it at all. Hannah had no idea that God was going to raise up Samuel, who would be like John the Baptist, preparing the way for the anointed one. Uh, Ruth had no idea that God was going to use her to create the lineage of David. We have no idea the choices that we make today, how God will use them in the bigger picture. We have no idea, but it's true. Now, we're going to look here in 1 Samuel then, and again, we can't read the whole story of Samuel because even Sam, I'm sorry, this whole Saul story, because even that takes up the better part of, of about 10 chapters. Instead, I, we, I want to give an outline and then focus in on two passages where um, Samuel confronts Saul about disobedience and announces that God has chosen a different anointed one. So, Let's start here in uh, chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. Chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. Let's, let's pray before we go on, if we would. Father, I pray that you would open up your word. I pray that you would give it power and clarity, more than I could ever have, God. I pray that you would breathe through this into our lives, into our very souls, and show us what you want us to know. Father, give us eyes to hear and ears to understand. Thank you. Amen. So chapter 9, we're told that up till this time, Israel had no king. And the, the problem was they had enemies all around them. We're going to see a couple of those today. And these enemies would just oppress the people. They had no centralized leadership. God would raise up judges for a while. But the people finally said, we want a king. We want a king. So God lets them have this king. And the first one he's going to raise up is this man named Saul. Or if you were Hebrew, you might call it Saul or Saul. Um, I think, but we're going to call Saul because that's how we've all learned it, right? Now, look how we see Saul in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. There was a man of Benjamin, I'm reading from the ESV, whose name was Kish, the Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zar, the son of Barakah, the son of Alphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth or standing. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. 
And we're going to see that later on. We're told that Saul was a, a, a whole head taller than anybody else. Now, of course, when you're living a thousand years before Christ in a very much non-technological society by our standards, but a physical society, that means a lot, right? That's a sign of, of strength. And, 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 and so he has got this great lineage. You can read it there. You know, it talks about the son of, son of. He, he's handsome. And he's got what people would value then, physical strength, and he was tall. And so he would look the part of a king. And God says, this is the one. And, and I'm not going to read the whole story again. But basically what you find is that when Saul is chosen, he not only displays these outward characteristics of the right kind of king, but he displays a humble heart. In fact, he says to, to Samuel later in this chapter, who am I that you would do this? That you would want, God would want me as king. And then a couple chapters later, when they, they go to, to have a coronation ceremony, they can't find him. He's hiding in the baggage, nervous or afraid or just too humble. I don't know. And then after that, after he's anointed, you know what he does? He goes back to the farm and goes plow the field behind the oxen when the first national emergency comes. And, and he, he goes back to his, his work on the farm. This hasn't gone to his head yet. And uh, this national emergency, there's a nation called... Uh, <clears throat> The Ammonites, who live in what we would call now, now Syria, and they were oppressing the people. And uh, one of the, the Ammonite king, Nahash, he wanted to this uh, Israelite city, Jabesh Gilead, to, to submit to his reign. And they said, okay, we'll do it. I mean, we don't have any power. And he says, okay, here's what you have to do to submit to my reign. I want, I'm going to come in, I'm going to gouge out the right eye of every male. And it was a sign of total domination, but it was also something that would hinder them from being able to resist in wartime at all. Now, when they hear about this, this gets to Saul plowing behind the oxen down there in, in the middle of Israel, and, uh, and he takes those oxen and says the spirit comes upon him. He cuts up the oxen that he's been, that he's been uh, plowing with, and he sends pieces throughout the whole land, and he says, this will be done to anyone's oxen who doesn't fall Saul and, Saul and Samuel in, in going against these oppressors. They muster 300,000 people. This is the first time since anyone can remember Israel's been this, had this much leadership, and they go and defeat the Ammonites and save the people from that disgrace. He starts out so well. And, and, and the years go by. Something begins to happen to Saul. We're reading between the lines. Saul, unlike David, doesn't write any psalms for us to know what's going on in his mind. One of the beautiful things about David, you can kind of see what, what he's thinking. We're reading between the lines, but somewhere between that beautiful beginning and that fateful end, Saul changes. He becomes a man preoccupied with keeping what he did not earn, what God simply gave him, the kingship. In fact, later on, you remember the story, probably, he even tries to kill David. And maybe the worst act of that David's on the run because Saul's trying to kill him. And David is helped by a king or a, a priest in the town of Nob. Saul hears about it, even though the priest didn't know the whole story. He was pretty much innocent. Saul sends a man in to kill the whole priesthood. Some 30 men slaughtered, religious men slaughtered by the hand of Saul through his henchmen. This is where he got to. We're not going to look at the whole story, but we're going to see two key incidents here. One is going to be 
in uh, chapter 15. I'm sorry, chapter 13. Well, before we do there, uh, this is Saul again. Probably one thing to point out here as we carry the story forward is, is one of the words that's used as key to the story is the word to anoint. Um, so to anoint would mean basically the same word you would use normally to just pour out something on someone or, or maybe even rub an ointment on something. You'd use that word anoint. But it became a, a more technical term. And in particular, though the verb meant to pour out something on, on someone, the Hebrew word, the noun form, became the anointed one. And so what Samuel did to Saul and later to David, he would take a flask or a horn of oil, of olive oil like this is, and he would pour it over the head. Anybody want to get anointed today? You just pour this right over your head? Brad's thinking about it. <laughs> Come on up if you want. <laughs> No, that's all right. Probably be too distracting, but he would pour this over the head. Now, why did he do this? Anybody know what the oil was a symbol of? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. So this was a sign that this person wasn't just themselves, that God's Spirit was poured out upon them for some special task. And that because of that, they had a special place in what God was doing. They were the anointed one. And uh, if you anglicize that word, it becomes the Messiah. The Greek translation of that is Christ. So when we're saying Christ, Jesus Christ, we're not saying his last name. We're, it's a title, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. And we'll come back to that. All right, got all my stuff here, Jeff. Sorry about that. Um, Saul has been anointed by God. And uh, you'll see here that especially during the early years of his reign, he had great success militarily. All this pink stuff here, is the borders of Israel at the end of his reign. Now, before then, even though Israel's were, Israelites were, or Hebrews were scattered all throughout here, uh, Philistia basically had control of this whole area here. The Ammonites would be up here. And, uh, and then you'd have the Phoenicians have more control up here, Moab and, and down here. In other words, though the people were all around here, the Hebrew people, the nation was more dominated militarily and politically by the nations around them. By the end of Saul's life, that is not true. And so God used him um, in a great way. But in chapter 13, we have a story. We're not going to read the whole thing. But basically what happens is Saul gathers to fight the forces of the Philistines at a town called Michmash. And uh, as part of this, there's going to be a ceremony where they offer sacrifices to God to seek his blessing and his help. Nothing wrong so far. But those sacrifices could only be offered by the priests or the prophet, not the king. And part of the reason is that God, until Jesus came, strictly enforced the separation of those two because they had different roles. And no one was, could have that much power without being corrupted. And in, in any case... Samuel says, I'm going to come. I'll take care of the sacrifice. But by the seventh day, he's not there yet. And, uh, and the people, the soldiers are starting to scatter. So Saul makes a very foolish decision. He decides to offer the sacrifice himself, even though he knows it's illegitimate for him to do that as a king. And Samuel says to him here, 
You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord God would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So basically here, God is telling him, your dynasty will not stand. I have already got someone else that is, I have put him a, a heart after mine. We'll come back to that phrase and all that it means a little bit throughout this. But I want you to go here then to chapter 15 as well. And uh, <clears throat> in this case, God has told his people through Saul, through Samuel, to he says, Saul, I want you to go take the army and completely destroy the Amalekites, who are a group of, basically we would call them Middle Eastern terrorists today, okay? They were people who would come in and terrorize. They were nomadic people. They would terrorize a village. They would kill people. They would take everyone they could as slaves, destroy, burn everything, and that's basically their method of operation. And God says, I want you to bring God's judgment upon these people, and I want you to destroy everything. And, uh, and yet, when the army goes, they bring back the cattle and the sheep, and they bring back the king. And uh, so Samuel, verse 12, rose up early to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed and went down to Gilgal. Another sign. Things have gone to his head, right? He makes a monument to himself. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be the Lord, to you be the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, Okay, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Now notice this, he starts to make an excuse. Uh, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest they had devoted to destruction. And Samuel said, Stop. I'm going to stop you right here. I will tell you what the Lord said. And he says, speak. Though you were once little in your own eyes. Oh, do you see the applied contrast? You're not now. Though you were once little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? In other words, has not God lifted you up? God anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the word of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought back Agad the king, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Wow. We may hear the story and think God is being very harsh. Um, but God has already doing something. God is bringing about someone who will take up and lead where Saul is not able to. Look how that's brought out even here. We're, we're not even told who this man's name is. 
We're told it was someone after God's own heart. 24, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I have turned transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So now he's honest. I obeyed their voice because I feared them. I didn't obey God's voice because he doesn't say it. Apparently he did not fear God. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. In other words, please show that you're still supporting me to the people. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And the glory of Israel will not lie or or, or have regret, for he is not a man that he should regret. Look how he phrases this. Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. So who, who's he still concerned with, right? And return with me that I may bow before who? The Lord your God. So Samuel, for whatever reason, changes his mind and goes back with him. Wow. Can you imagine David ever saying the Lord your God instead of my God or our God? Do you see the great distance between Saul and this king? I mean, Saul and the, and the true king of Israel, God himself. Saul is concerned with the people. He wants to hold on to that kingship so much that he, he basically wants to use God through the form of Samuel to accomplish his goal. Now stop here for a second. This is the common route of mankind, to use God for our goal. Let me go further. This is the weak and corrupted spirit of religion. We can be religious people, and yet we want to use religious activity and to get God's favor so that he will, in our minds at least, bless us the way that we want. We have an idea of what I want our future to look like. This is what I want my life to look like five years from now. Or this, this area of my life is I'm really concerned about. I want it to be a certain way. I want God to fix this problem. If I go to church, if I do the right things, if, I, if I'm religious, and, and, and then God will help me and bless me. God will not be used because it reverses the very order of created things. We have not created God for our purposes. He has created us for his purposes, but also for our flourishing. But that can't happen until we get in our hearts, not just our mind, this right relationship that there is a God and I'm not him. And that I am there, I am here now to blend my will with God. He won't obliterate my personality, but I give myself and all I am to him and I seek him and I want what he wants. That's being a man after God's own heart. That's being a woman after God's own heart. The flip side of that is being a Saul. I want God to bless me for my own things that I want. This is the common challenge to us. This spiritual dynamic is not left in Israel a thousand years before Christ. This is in our hearts today. And if we're honest, probably we vacillate between those two things sometimes. I had a question that came to my mind as I was reading the story. We're going to get to David here in a minute. I'm not sure if we'll get to him today or not. 
My question that came to my mind is, why, God? Why, why did you do it this way? I mean, God knows everything, right? So he knew Saul was going to do this. He knew where Saul would get to go. So why didn't he just start with David? You ever think through questions like that? I mean, was, was he just a fall guy, the foil, the setup? Well, he is a contrast, but I believe he also had his free will involved, so it's not just a setup. Let me give you what I think is the answer here. And here we're going to start drawing this to the larger picture. So, so far we've been at that first level of the Matushkadala, as it were, the individual level. Let me draw it to the second and third level a little bit. Why did God not just start with David? After all, David becomes the symbol of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, like any symbol, he is not Jesus. He's not perfect. It's not a full symbol. It's something that points by way, by way of likeness and by way of contrast to Jesus. But look at some of the likenesses. David and Jesus both defeat God's enemies. The difference is David's enemies are the Philistines and the Ammonites and, and everything else. God's enemies here are our sin and death and this, the kingdom of Satan. He establishes a kingdom, and Jesus also, and we'll come back to that. He brings shalom in a limited sense, a political sense, external sense, and Jesus brings it completely, but he begins on the inside. David teaches us what it means to be a human before God. He is the fullest portrait in all the Bible of a human with God. There's even more ink put in him chapter by chapter than the life of Jesus himself. And as well as you've got all the Psalms, David teaches us what it means to be a human before God imperfectly, and sometimes by his failures, but Jesus does the same thing. He becomes not only our savior, but our, our model. Now this kingdom, David's kingdom that he brings in, is relative, temporary shalom. And the kingdom that Jesus brings in is perfect, eternal shalom. But again, it's a process that begins inwardly. So, why then does he begin with Saul? I don't know all the answers, but here's what I think. I think we are intended to see in this larger picture of redemption David and Saul as almost a microcosm or symbols of the broader spiritual dynamics of human failure and God's provision. What do I mean by that? I sense that King Saul looks back to David or looks back to Adam. Adam and Eve were royal figures. They were created by God to be his regents over creation to rule and reign and, and, and guide creation. It was a royal calling that they abandoned because that can only come in communion with God. And when they departed from that and took us with them, humanity lost its connection with God and its rightful royal rule. I think, I think Saul is intended by the Holy Spirit to be seen as something of a symbol. Like Adam, he starts well because he's got everything he should. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's handsome. He's humble. He's smart. And yet, there comes a point where the shift goes from God to himself, where there's a desire for independence from God instead of a desire for a greatest integration of his life with God's. And, uh, and he fails. Jesus, on the other hand, or King David, on the other hand, looks ahead 
to Jesus. David is presented as a sign or a type or a symbol foreshadowing of Christ more than any other figure in the New Testament. Now, again, sometimes it's by contrast. David was a sinner. We'll get to that part. Um, and yet his heart, his heart, even in spite of his failings, his failings were, were failings of his flesh, but his heart desired God. And his heart desired to be used by God more than to use God. You see, when Jesus comes then, he's also going to bring a kingdom. It's a kingdom in some ways like David, where God brings stability and peace and shalom, but in other ways it's much deeper and greater. Think of it like this. Matthew 4, it says, right after his baptism, what did Jesus do? And Jesus began going throughout Israel, teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. And then you read in Matthew again and again and again, that phrase, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, uses them synonymously. And what... All the parables, or most of the parables, begin, now the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like, and then he explains it, because this kingdom is going to be hard for us to grasp. Why? Because it only has an analogy to the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world are territorial and external. They have boundaries. They're led by sinners. There is peace sometimes at their best, but it's also mingled with strife and violence and injustice. It's enforced by law and power and rules, and it's... Uh, Injustice and evil flourish. It's temporary and provisional. One kingdom gives way to the next, and eventually all of them give way. But the kingdom of heaven is this cosmic and internal kingdom. It's led by God himself. It brings a shalom, a wholeness, a peace, fully. It's goodness expressed naturally, the idea being that you don't have to have laws and police and wars in this kingdom because people will do naturally what we are, should be doing. You see this kingdom displayed in, or prophesied in, in, like Isaiah and Ezekiel. Justice and righteousness are perfected, and that shalom is eternal and settled. But here's the thing. The kingdom of, this, of heaven is in two stages. The first coming of the Messiah, he's dealing with making us, the people who can live in that kind of kingdom. He has to deal with our sin problem that has separated us from God, and the sin penalty. The wages of sin is death, not life. And he does that through the cross. So King Jesus comes as a king, but the kingdom that he has is, first of all, this internal kingdom of our heart, where we give ourselves to him in belief and receive his forgiveness and seek to follow him. And this kingdom of heaven, though it begins here, we also believe that all the prophecies in the Old Testament about this conquering king, this crowned king leading the, his, his people into a time of unending peace and prosperity, that will be fulfilled at the second coming. First the cross and then the crown. So this kingdom starts. Now here's the deal. Then right here, when this begins, this ends. When the second coming comes, Revelation 21, now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of God in Christ. And until that time, though, these two kingdoms are intermingled. It's a time of tension. It's a time of tested loyalty with every decision that we make. That's what this kingdom is about. So this is, I believe, why God places the story of David and Saul to us in, in the first place. 
in one sense, it was a gift of God to give stability to the nation and peace to the nation. But beyond that, third level, the deepest level, it was also a symbol that there is a, a shalom, a peace, a kingdom yet to come. Now let's stop back and just apply this a little bit before we close. What's this mean to you and I? Oh, it should mean the world to us. First of all, if I remember that I'm living in a time of divided kingdoms, it means that my choices I make are not random or unconsequential, but rather in some degree they're a reflection of which kingdom I really want to be a part of more, which values have shaped my life more. Am I seeking power? Am I seeking status? Am I seeking control over other people? Or am I seeking to serve them in love, to grow in righteousness and truth? When I think about it like that, it changes the game. I'm not just following a bunch of rules because I want to be religious. No. I want to join with Jesus Christ in establishing this internal kingdom right here in the midst of the ruins, the passing ruins of the old kingdom. That's one thing. Second thing I see is is this. It should give us great hope and perspective to know that all the evil and sin of this world is not the final word. Death is not the final word. Suffering is not the word. Pain and grief are not the the final word. They are a word. They are a reality. But they are not the last word. The last word is a kingdom of God in which he wipes every tear away from our eyes, in which he establishes perfect righteousness and peace. Evil has no place. Evil has an expiration date. Death and violence and injustice have an expiration date. We look at them as evil. Yes, they're real, but they are not eternal. They serve a purpose in God's greater kingdom, and when that purpose is accomplished by his own will and his own unseen plan, they're done. And so giving ourselves to the ways of this world is stupid. We're investing ourselves in things that will die. Last thing I want to bring out as an application of this. Going back to the Matushka principle. (laughs) Guess what? Your story's here too. And this is a beautiful thought. Like I said, Ruth, used by God to establish this kingdom of David and eventually Jesus. Remember, remember Matthew's genealogy of Jesus? There are four women mentioned. Ruth is one of them. Because back then they didn't usually include women in genealogies at all. Holy Spirit makes sure to say, okay, but remember this one and this one and this one? They're foreigners. They're outcasts. Ruth is a Moabite. She's poor. She's been barren for 10 years in her marriage. She goes back out of loyalty. And God uses that little decision to bring about his kingdom. Hannah, she could have turned away from God in distress and disgust. She turned towards God in prayer, and God used that to bring Samuel, who would be the transition figure to set up the kingdom. Oh, we could go through this all day. How many of the people back then saw what God was doing? No one. Maybe Samuel had a clue if God revealed it to him. But other than else, everyone else was going through their lives, not knowing what God was doing with their lives in making this kingdom. And the same thing is going to be true for you and me. God is going to use the small and insignificant things, sometimes like Ruth and like Hannah, the things that we feel are weakest in, the things that we feel we're not good enough in, the things we feel the most pain in, those are the things he will use. 
if we turn towards him in humility and trust in prayer to build his kingdom in ways that we won't see. Your story, no matter what you think it is, is not pointless because God doesn't work without a purpose. And he is building something beautiful and incredible through the lives of ordinary people just like he did back then. Father, thank you. Thank you that we don't have to be perfect because you are. Thank you that we don't have to get it all right because you do. Thank you that we can simply be people who get it messed up sometimes. But please draw our heart back to you again and again. And help us to have a heart for you, not a heart that wants to use you. Helps to be people after your own heart and not people after the perks of the kingdom or whatever we have in our mind. Help us, Lord, to be like David instead of Saul. Help us to be like Hannah instead of Peniah, the rival wife. Help us to be like Ruth instead of Orpah, the woman who went back. Lord, help us to trust you that you are doing incredible things in ways that we will not see if we simply stay faithful and relying upon you with a heart towards you. Please apply this to the choices of our lives this week, Lord. Amen. Please stand.